word and hear about the home that God has for his people, starting in verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to the preaching of your word. Would you demonstrate once again and show us in this occasion that your word is living and active, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that you are the God who speaks. You are the God who delights and desires to be known because you have revealed yourself in creation in redemption and through your word. So Lord, send forth your word today to awaken in our hearts a hunger for home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had something that was so special to you that you were saddened, even maybe devastated, when you discovered that it was lost, that you didn't have it anymore? Well, a a silly example of this in my own life, the first time I can remember having something that was so special to me that I was devastated when it was lost, 
was when I was an 11 year old kid and we were a couple hours down the road from our hotel in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And, and my mother's already laughing at me, but I wasn't laughing then. I was crying uncontrollably as an 11 year old boy. And I wasn't sad because we were leaving the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee or all the delights of Dollywood theme park. I was sad because back in a hotel in Tennessee, I had left the most special possession to me in all the world. It was my blanket. Now you laugh, but I'm comfortable enough with my masculinity and identity to admit that I had the most special blanket in all the world. It was made for me before I was born and up till that time as 11 year old boy, there was not a day that I can remember that I did not have that blanket close by. And I loved that blanket with all the sentimental love that an 11 year old boy can muster. And suddenly it was gone. And all my pleading, all my begging would not convince my mother to turn around and get it. It was in vain. In fact, if you know me, you'd know that sentimental is not a word that you would ever use to describe me. And it's because of this childhood trauma, okay? <laughs> there was something special and I lost and I was devastated. And I was only, my hope was that maybe someday it would return. It has not. Now that's a silly example, but consider this serious one. Kings were not supposed to live in caves hiding for their life, but King David was. He had to flee for his life because his very own son had turned against him and convinced many others to do the same. And so David had lost the comfort of home. He had lost the fellowship of his people. He had lost his reputation as king, and he had lost all the privileges and prerogatives that came with being the leader of a great kingdom. But none of those losses saddened David more than this loss. What saddened David most was that he had lost access to that special place where God's presence dwelt in a special way. He's hiding in a cave with all of these threats, his life on the line, and here's how he expressed his loss and his longing. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So of all that David lost, his one request in the desert as he's fearing for his life is this. One thing have I asked and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. You see, what, what David's word help us grasp is that whenever we experience loss of any kind and the accompanying desire for what was lost to be restored to us, it's a reminder that we live in the time between paradise lost and paradise restored. We live in, a sense, the valley of tears, the valley of loss, the valley of the shadow of death. And all of our experiences of loss, whether it's a special childhood possession, a job, a friendship, a cherished loved one, these are all echoes of that great loss that humanity has experienced because of rebelling against God and turning away from him. We have lost the joy and privilege of being God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence. That is the ultimate loss. And yet, all of our hopes for that loss being restored, whatever we've lost, are faint reminders of the promise and hope of redemption that is found in Christ Jesus, that will be fulfilled in the new creation. And what is that promise and hope that we have through the redemption that is in Christ that will be brought to completion in the new creation? It's this, what we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore. 
the hope of the new creation is that all of our agonizing hope for a loss to be restored will one day be fulfilled when what we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore. So what we're going to look at is how John describes the new creation as this restoration project. And as John describes the new creation, what he does is he's going to pile one biblical symbol on top of another. So it's almost like as he describes one thing, then he moves on to another and he piles that on top of the other one. Then he moves on to another and he piles that on top of the other. So, so I think of it like watching a baker making a cake and it's this triple layered cake. And on each layer, there's, there's more goodness and there's more frosting and there's more delights in the new creation. And so with each of these layers that John describes, he's going to reach back in the Old Testament and he's going to describe a place that had the utmost significance to the people of God throughout history and say, in the new creation, God is going to restore that place. But the way God restores something isn't just putting it back to the way it was. When God restores something, he makes it even better than it was before. He restores it to a place of perfection and permanence, something that it never was before. So the first thing we see is that in the new creation, God will restore us to the perfect city. So look at verse 10 of Revelation 21. So the first thing that John sees in this restoration project is a city. So verse 10, and he carried me away into the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So the first thing John sees is the city. So for the nation of Israel, for the people of God who understood their, their Bible well, what they remember about Jerusalem is that it, it once had a glory under King David and King Solomon for a little while that far outweighed all the glories of the other city of the world because it was the place where, where God dwelt, where the people could come, where there was community and culture centered around God. And yet, if you read a book like Lamentations, one of the things we see of that former city is that Jeremiah is looking back and he's weeping because he sees the city disheveled and in ruins and devastated because the people's sin and idolatry, they had actually, instead of looking like the Lord as a city center on the Lord, they had looked like the nations around them and they had started to center themselves on other things other than God. And, and the sad history of cities in the world is that cities are places where a lot of sinful people congregate and often center themselves around sinful things. So think of in our own modern culture, we have a city whose nickname is Sin City. So we have this place called Sin City that people flock to because they have this false idea that what happens there stays there. They can go to this place and they can indulge their desires and their lusts and their pleasures. And, and that seems to be the desirable city that has all the attraction in our world. And the cities in the Bible are often places where man's collective pride and rebellion gathers. So you think of Babel and the Tower of Babel, people trying to use their ingenuity to build a tower to ascend the throne of God, a picture of rebellion. And then in Revelation, you have Babylon, the this, this city that represents the city of man, collectively seeking to rebel against God and do things that God does not desire. And yet what John shows us is that this city is going to be different because its designer and builder is not man, it's God. And it comes not up from the ground of the earth, but it comes down from heaven to earth. It has a heavenly origin. So the, the name he gives it is a holy city because it will be centered around God. And the place it is made is in heaven and it comes down to earth, which shows that its designer and builder is God. So this city will be different because it will perfectly reflect the character and glory of God. And something else about this city that is different than cities we often experience 
is that it will be a city that is completely secure and perfectly peaceful. So when we think of cities in our day, what we often find in the news is the crime rates are higher here or this uh, great travesty or tragedy happened in this city. We think of cities as places that often is a place where, where crime rates are higher, where it's, where it's not as safe, where you're, where you're always worried about your possessions and locking things up and your, your safety. And yet notice how John describes this place. Look at verse 12 with me. So this city had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So this is a place where the walls are there. And I take this really honestly as, as a symbol primarily. And walls were meant to be pictures that presented fortification. It was a refuge that you could run into, a place that you could go to and you knew you were safe. But notice what else it says about this city. Look down at verse 25 of chapter 21. So there's walls and there's gates, but notice that these gates aren't used at all. Look at verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I read that, and I was talking to someone else about this, and they said, when I read that, I always think, why don't, why don't they shut the gates? They need, they need to shut those and lock those. Now, if you've ever had this, when you leave your house, and you're driving away, and then all of a sudden the paranoia hits you. Did I lock the door? Did I lock the door? Now, if you have the Wi-Fi in your app, you can just press a button and it goes. But here, there is no need to lock anything up. And, and you've probably heard, maybe you grew up in a small town and you'll talk about how you would go to the Quick Mart or whatever it was called, and you'd leave your car running out there because no one would take it. There's a place that cities and places where we live should be like, and yet often we're always worried about our protection, our safety. And yet here, because the Lord is there, because the Lord is our refuge and our fortress, this city will be perfectly safe, perfectly secure, perfectly peaceful. And also, this city will be filled with all of God's people across time, across the globe, who will live together in perfect unity. So I just read in verse 12 how it describes how the walls will have inscribed on them the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then notice also verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, I I take these two images here of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles to mean that in this place, all of God's people from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from, from the ministry of God in the Old Testament to the ministry of God in the New Testament will live together in perfect unity and perfect harmony. Now, isn't that something we long for in this world, that we see there's, there's so much division, there's so much strife and struggles and things. We think of the political division in the world, social division, all these things. And when you hear that, isn't your longing for a place where there can be a dwelling, where we, we have unity, we have this uh, commonality, we, we live together in harmony. And that can only happen through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet there, there's one thing we all have in common with everyone in this world. And that one thing is that we're sinners in need of a savior. But as Christians, we have two things in common. We're sinners in need of a Savior, and we know the Savior who has redeemed us and purchased us and bought us with his precious blood. And in heaven, that will be the only thing that matters. We won't wonder, who did you vote for? We won't wonder, you know, what kind of car do you drive? What, you know, what sports team do you cheer for? We will be delighted in the fact that we together have been redeemed by the Savior, and our lives will be centered around him. It will be the one city that is centered on the one right thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will live together in perfect unity. Now, this description of the city is meant to remind us that the world as it is now is not our home. 
We are always a pilgrim people. We are exiles and sojourners longing for the place where God makes all things new. And so as Charles Spurgeon said, when it comes to this world as it is now, the Christian ought to be the most contented person in the world, but the least contented with the world. We are like travelers in an inn, perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodations, considering it as an inn, but putting quite out of mind the idea of making this place our home. We are eagerly waiting for a better home. So it teaches us to be content here because we know that the best is yet to come. I think one of the greatest lies we're often told, the greatest deceptions we often buy into is that what's coming later is just going to be boring and bland and dry. You're just going to be sitting, strumming a harp in heaven, hoping that the service ends. You know, you might feel that here sometimes, but not there, not there. And in fact, that, that YOLO statement, you know, you only live once, so grab life with all the gusts you get. That is not true. The best is yet to come. All the joys that we experience here will only be magnified and better there. And all the things that taint joy here will not be there. The best is yet to come. So it teaches us to be content. But also this description of our future home is meant to remind us what the church is to be like now. The church is meant to be an embassy of that future city of God. That how we conduct ourselves when we care for one another, when we encourage one another towards Christ-likeness, when we welcome others into our fellowship, into our home, we should seek to do that in such a way that we give people a little picture and a little taste of what that future city is going to be like. And so that should cause us to pray and strive as a church to seek to be an embassy, a reflection of this future city of God. Well, as we move along, we see that in the new creation, God is not only going to restore us to the perfect city, but he's going to restore us to the perfect temple, the perfect temple. Now think in your mind of the most exclusive, desirable place on the earth that you would like to visit. So whether you you see pictures on social media of, of some island, tropical island somewhere where there's a waterfall and nobody's there and you don't know how to get there because you don't have a private jet to, to fly there. But what is the most exclusive, desirable place that you can think of that you'd love to go to? You know, for me, I think in very small, simple ways, I always looked at private suits in stadiums as the place I wanted to get to. So I'd go, you'd buy the nosebleed tickets for $5, you'd be standing up there next to the air conditioner and you'd see people come out of the private suites with like popcorn and hot dogs and and different things that they could probably actually see the players on the ground. They didn't look like ants. And I always wanted to get in there, but I realized it's pretty expensive. I'm not gonna be in a private suite uh, in that way. Well, for the Israelite, they viewed the temple that way. More specifically, they viewed the Holy of Holies that way. It was the most exclusive, desirable place that they wanted to be in, in the world. Because God dwelt there in a special and unique way. And yet we think, well, why was that seem, why was that an exclusive place to them? Why was it so desirable? Because it was right there, wasn't it? Well, yes, the Israelites were able to dwell near the temple. They were always kind of around the temple. But unless you were an Israelite priest, you never went into the temple. And unless you were the high priest of Israel, you never went into the Holy of Holies. It was an exclusive place, a very restricted place and a limited place. And what John shows us in his description of the new creation, especially in verses 15 to 21, is that the whole city which he has just described to us is actually going to become a bigger and better holy of holies that everyone will be in all the time and have access to always. Here's, here's, how, that, here's how John shows it. If you look at verses 15 to 17, John begins to describe the measurements 
of this city. And these measurements reflect the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, in Exodus, and even in Ezekiel. So let me just, let's look at verse 15 to 17. So John sees the city and then says this, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The only other place that shows up in the Bible is in Ezekiel's vision of that new future temple, which is to come. You see someone with a measuring rod going to, going to measure this holy place. Now verse 16, the city lies four square. Its length, the same as its, as its width. So what, what John is showing is that this city he's measuring is a perfect cube. Every place he measures is the same exact measurement as the other place he measured. It's 12,000 stadia, which is to say it's really big. So someone told me that if, if you take the moon and you, you scrunch into a cube, that's how big this thing that John is measuring is. Now, every measurement that John gives is, has some relationship to the number 12. And I think that's significant. And the number 12 is kind of the fullness of God's people are dwelling there. So I don't, I don't think he's actually giving strictly uh, literal measurements. Now, it, it may be this big, but it's more showing that every one of God's people in its fullness and completion is going to be able to dwell in this place. All of God's people will be there. No one will be left out. And so as John is measuring this, the only other place in the Bible where something, we're given something of its measurement and it is a perfect cube is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament. It's the only place, that, that special place where God dwelt, where all the measurements lined up exactly. And now what John is showing us is that there's not just going to be a Holy of Holies in the new city, in the new creation. The whole place will be filled and permeated with God's presence such that it will be a Holy of Holies. Now in verses 18 to 20, John gives us all these precious, valuable stones. And, and there's 12 of them. Again, that number 12 being significant. These valuable stones are found in connection with that chess piece that the high priest would wear when he was going about his public official duties and he would go into the Holy of Holies bearing the name of the people of God on his chest. I think what, so why John mentions these stones and sapphires and 12 of them here is to show that just as the high priest was able to representatively go into the Holy of Holies bearing the name of the people of God on him, all of God's people will be able to dwell in this place. None of them will be kept out. We won't just have to hope that our representative can go in there on our behalf. We'll get to be in there as well. We'll have access to that one place that you've always wanted to be into, into that glorious, life-giving, joy-filling presence of God because it will permeate and pervade the whole place and no one will be left out. And so it's interesting though with this description of what John says in verse 22. Look at there. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. So which is it, John? Is there not gonna be a temple or is there gonna be a temple? Well, the answer is yes, okay? There will be no physical temple. What we are looking for is not some concrete block constructed place that has nice, valuable, precious stones on it and gold. What we're looking for is what the temple represented all along. What did the temple represent all along? It represented God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence in the utmost peace and joy that anyone can imagine. And so the new creation will be like that. It'll be what the temple was pointing to all along. The whole thing will be like a temple because God will be there with his people and we will enjoy his presence in a fuller, richer way than even David or Solomon or the great high priest was able to, even in the Old Testament. 
So what it will mean is that God's presence will pervade and permeate the whole place. We will never again feel distant from God, cut off from God, wandering from God. We will never sing those lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel, prone to leave the God I love, because they won't be true anymore. We will all be in the immediate abiding presence of the Lord who loved us. And we will experientially know what the psalmist said in Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And so these descriptions remind us of the temple and how the new creation will be a perfect, restored, permanent temple. Now in the new creation, God's not only gonna restore it to the perfect city and the perfect temple, but in the new creation, God will restore us to the perfect garden. So look at Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So note, John starts by describing a city. And then he's just describing the city, it turns into a temple. And he's describing the temple, it now turns into a garden. And this description in particular here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22 should remind us of that original paradise of God, the Garden of Eden. And in the Bible, the last glimpse we get of the Garden of Eden is over Adam and Eve's shoulder, as it were, as they're looking back, seeing the place that they were originally made to live with God in, but because of their sin, they can no longer go in. And what they're looking back at is not the Garden of Eden, but the way being blocked by angels who are guarding the way to the tree of life. So the story of the Bible has come full circle here from Genesis to Revelation. The story of the Bible begins with God's people in a garden with God, enjoying his presence, and the tree of life is in it, but then they're sent away. They're banished from God's presence. And now the Bible ends with God's people welcomed into a garden where he dwells with a tree of life in it, and they can now eat from it to their heart's content. Something has changed. What's changed? Well, what makes all the difference is a garden and a tree in the middle of the Bible. We move from paradise lost to paradise restored because of a garden and a tree in the middle of the Bible. Because when we come to the middle of the Bible, we meet the Son of God in the garden of agony, sweating drops of blood, praying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And doing the opposite of what the first Adam did. The first Adam said, not your will, but my will be done. What does the second Adam do? He says, not my will, but yours be done. And then the next scene we see him in, after that garden of agony, is him bearing the tree of death. He's carrying beams of wood cut from a tree up a hill called Calvary, where he is going to hang and be crucified on a tree of death. And while he's on that tree of death, he utters these very significant words, I thirst. John's gospel is the only gospel that records these words. Because John also talks about Jesus meeting a woman at a well in Samaria saying, out of you, if you believe in me, out of you will throw, flow rivers of living water and you will never thirst again. The next time we see that river of life is here in Revelation 22, a river of life, emphasizing that God's people will be able to drink eternally, endlessly, from the enjoyment of God's presence, from the delight that they have always desired. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin while he thirsted on the tree of death. Why? 
so that we could be welcomed into the place where we could drink from the river of life and eat from the tree of life. So we are welcomed into the true garden, the better garden. Because in the first garden, there was two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. In the second garden, there's only one tree, the tree of life. It was, the other tree was eliminated because Christ bore our curse in our place so that we could be welcomed into the place where it is perfect and permanent. Well, finally, in the new creation, God will restore us to a perfect relationship with himself. He'll not only restore the city, the temple, the garden, the place, but he'll restore everything that made those places what they were. In the new creation, we will experience joys which this earth can only faintly reflect. In the new creation, we will see beauties that this earth could only hint at. But those joys and those beauties won't be the best part. In the new creation, we will have benefits that you cannot even imagine. Peace and rest and refreshment and a clean bill of health all the time and comfort. And yet none of those benefits even come close to touching the greatest benefit and joy and beauty of the new creation. What is the best part of the new creation? Well, John gives us the answer in chapter 22, verse 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And what John says here is merely a restatement of what he said in Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The best part of the new creation is that we will enter into the full blessing of enjoying fully the all-satisfying presence of the Lord. The city of Jerusalem without God there was just an ordinary city. The temple in Jerusalem was just a big expensive building without the presence of God there. The Garden of Eden was just an ordinary garden except for the presence of God. It was the thing that made all of those places what they were. And so, even in the new creation, if the new creation was filled with all the benefits, all the beauties, and all the joys that we could ever imagine and want in this world, if God were not there, it would be an empty place. It would be an empty place. Reminds me of when the Israelites were preparing to enter the Promised Land, They were doing what they do well. They were being stubborn and rebellious and sinful, and they had made a golden calf. And the Lord says, you know what, Moses, I'm just going to start over with you. And he he pleads with them, don't do that. And then the Lord says, you know what, I'll send you to the promised land, but I won't go with you. And Moses gets it right. He says, Lord, if you're not going to go with us, don't even send us there. Moses understood the one thing that they wanted was not a promised land. They wanted the presence of God in the promised land. And so it reminds me of another illustration there was a mother and a daughter sitting on a plane, and it was a, a later flight in the day, and kind of the sun was setting, and the mother was looking out the window on her window seat, and she saw just the beauty of the sun as it was setting, kind of getting all these colors off from the sky through the clouds and kind of all the, you know, those halos shining out there. And she wanted her daughter to see this beauty, and she said, you know, dear, look out the window. It's so beautiful, it looks almost like heaven. So the daughter is kind of leaning over her mother's lap, peering out the window, and the daughter's searching everywhere, and she's kind of looking, and the mother's like, you know, what, what is she looking for? And she keeps looking, and she keeps looking. And then she looks up at her mother with a very concerned face, and she says, 
Mom, you said it looked like heaven out there, but I don't see Jesus anywhere. Now, the daughter didn't understand similes and metaphors very well, but she she knew her theology well. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And so she was looking for the one thing she thought she was going to see in heaven, which is her Savior, Jesus. And what the new creation reminds us is that what we have lost, God will restore. The city, the temple, the garden. That, but mostly himself forevermore. God will be in that place with us. The new creation will bring about the restoration of the perfect city, the perfect temple, the perfect garden, because God will be the center of it all, pervading and permeating it all with his people. That will be our joy and delight. That is the place that we were made to live in. And yet, John reminds us of something. Look at verse 27 of chapter 21. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life and there's so many people who their hope of heaven is built on you know i've generally been a good person or even if i haven't been a good person you always go to a good place when you die it's called justification by death just because you die you get to go to a better place that's not the gospel if that's the gospel, we have no hope. Because if, if the standards that nothing unclean or detestable enter into it, we of all people are most to be pitied. Because if God were to examine us thoroughly and fully, there would be so much that he could find that would disqualify us from entering that place. But there is hope. Because the Lamb of God left heaven to enter a city called Jerusalem, to walk up a hill called Calvary, to die on a cross, so that he could build a new Jerusalem where he would be with his people. Our only hope is that we know that Savior who entered that city and died on that cross. Only he can write our name in the Lamb's Book of Life and grant us access into that city. Only he can tear the veil that opens the way into the Holy of Holies so that we can go and be in the presence of God. Only he is the one who entered the Garden of Agony so we could enter the Garden of the new creation. That is our hope. Whenever I read this section of scripture, I can't help, being, being the person I am and the fan of C.S. Lewis that I am, I can't help but think of the final words of C.S. Lewis as he signs off on the Narnia series in The Last Battle. He said this, The things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is our hope. Let's pray that God would direct our hearts that way.